Welcome to the Explore Words Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, we explore the topic of religion with Professor Robin Dunbar, Emeritus Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at the University of Oxford. He joins host Akhil Ahmed, former head of religion and ethics at the BBC, to discuss the evolutionary purpose of spiritual thought, the endurance of religion in an increasingly secular world, and the human impulse to believe. Recorded live at the 2022 Bradford Literature Festival, this enlightening episode explores path-breaking research, case studies, and stories of charismatic cult leaders to offer analysis of this quintessential human impulse. Well, thank you very much for coming out on a, I was about to say on a rainy Friday night in Bradford, but it's not rainy anymore, is it? It's a gloriously sunny Friday evening at the Bradford Literature Festival. Um, My name's Akhil Ahmed, and I'm um, on the board of the Bradford Literature Festival, but actually today I'm going to be reliving my past. I was the head of religion and ethics for the BBC and for Channel 4, the only person to be stupid enough to have done the job twice. So, and, uh, and a bit like... Michael Corleone in The Godfather Part 3, just when you think you've got out, they drag you back in. So I'm back today. That's not true. I'm still involved in the world of religion and television and all those things. And so, but anyway, enough about that. That Just so you, if you, if you wondered, why is this idiot having this conversation with somebody as esteemed as Professor Dunbar? It's because of that. So we are lucky today that we have Robin Dunbar. Uh, Emeritus Professor, is that what I might say? Emeritus Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at the University of Oxford. And I don't know how many of you have seen this book or read his book yet, How Religion Evolved and Why It Endures. Because if you've not, you're in for a treat. I've read it, it's a fantastic book, and we're going to go and, and, and Robin is going to talk us through the various different stages of the book in, when that will help us have a conversation about the evolution of religion going through prehistoric times through to today and some of the kind of sociological and, and, and community aspects that have helped religion evolve into what we feel the world we live in today is and how it is. So Robin, to start off with, tell us why you wrote the book. <laughs> uh, well, actually, I was committed to writing it by a, a grant uh, we had for a project from the Templeton Foundation uh, who fund a lot of um, science and religion projects. That's their main uh, interest, as it were. And uh, part of the deal uh, for it that I was talked into was that I should write a book, which was be an overview of what we did on the project. Um, But that said, um, well, that made me very nervous, actually. (laughs) It's a very big topic, but it's a topic that I've actually always been interested in, uh, perhaps partly because of uh, having grown up in a very multicultural environment where you are surrounded by lots of different religions uh, from all around the world in a very small, relatively small community. So you knew about all these different religions from a very early uh, stage of childhood, if you like. But um, it it, it came kind of working on the evolution of human behavior, uh, as I've been doing really for the past, well, 50 years, probably one way or another. Um, it became kind of very obvious to me that religion had played a huge role in the evolution of human sociality, at least in the later stages of our time on Earth, as they say. Um, And it made a very big contribution to our success as a species. Um, But at the same time, you know, it's a kind of puzzle. Why why would um, uh, something like religion um, kind of evolved, you know, what's the benefit that uh, um, our ancestors, our uh, predecessors have gained from having a religious view, of being, being religious or having a religiosity disposition, if you like. So it's trying to solve that problem became more and more um, uh, an overriding interest and, and, and made me look at much more at the big picture. And I suppose this book is a very big picture. So most people who study the evolution or psychology of religion 
or the sociology of religion, the archaeology of religion, tend to be focused on very, very uh, small timescales and, and detailed components. So the cognitive science of religion, which is a major field, people are only interested in uh, how the uh, mind is adapted to manage religious uh, concepts, if you like. And, and that seemed to be barely scratching the surface of the stuff that's really interesting. And I guess this goes back to kind of one of the big divisions in the study of the anthropology of religion, which is religion as ritual, which is a kind of Durkheimian sort of view, if you, if you um, follow these things. Uh, it's about things people do, and it's a communal activity on the one hand, or, or there's the William James view, which takes the view that it's um, psychological states, mind states, if you like, which is about beliefs. Um, and those are sort of those two views have been running in parallel and somewhat in opposition. And of course, they both have to be true. Um, but it seems to me most of the research and thinking that's been done in this whole, this whole area, um, really, in the last fifty years, maybe, is focused on the belief side and much less on the doing part, the the practical. Well, of religion. well, let's go to the book then, because obviously you've very, you've got, it's, there are ten chapters, and it's very, very easy for me. Thank you very much, because <laughs> you've made it really easy for us to use them as a kind of like a narrative journey for us yeah. to go along. So you've, you've already got chapter one out of the way, right. which is actually why and, the, and the, yeah. how the study, etc. But what is it about the aspect of human psych of psychology which actually makes humans interested in this kind of some transcendental kind of belief structure? That's the beginning of it, actually, because obviously something, it has to start somewhere. So how does it start, and why is it that we're, we're predisposed to this? Or are we? I think the answer is we are predisposed to it, and it, it comes from two kind of sources. One is the fact that it's, we find it very easy to go into trance. Um, that's a major component of pretty much all religions, both the kind of very small scale, uh, if you like, in inverted commas, primitive religions of uh, um, hunter-gatherers and so on, where, which are not formal religions in the sense they have a theology, but trance dancing, for example, is a major component of that, and going into spirit travels in, in the spirit world is, is you know, the key exercise, if you like, and very important uh, 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 for them. Um, right through to all the big religions as we know them. You know, all of them engage at some point uh, uh, in, in trance uh, activities. It, it, clearly in things like Buddhism, yoga and so on, it's, it's deliberately driven uh, in, in meditation to go into trance. Um, but in most of the rest of the religions, it's one of those things that, that um, occurs uh, uh, perhaps spontaneously. Um, lots of mystics um, in the history of Christianity, all its branches. Most of the Protestant sects started as mystical sects. Um, <laughs> uh, that's why the Quakers are called Quakers, because of their uh, sh shaking going in, into trance. Um, <clears throat> but in the uh, early, early days? Very early on, it's just yeah. trance dancing, mm. uh, essentially. And you find this... In, in, it's a sort of shamanic kind of activity. Sometimes it's created by music very often. But I think a lot of it probably came out of the experiences going into caves as shelters. Once you get deep cave systems, um, it becomes very disorienting in there. And uh, musical uh, activities, singing in particular and dancing or clapping, um, really seems to trigger uh, trance states very, very easily. But are they searching for answers at this point, or are they searching it's, for just, just uh, explanation of, just, or just an experience? It's just an experience. And then, you know, I mean, we're talking about archaic humans, people like the Neanderthals and the, the um, Heidelberg folk, who are the main stem uh, uh, of the archaic humans that give rise to the Neanderthals on one side and us on the other side. Um, you know, they, they're. Uh, perfectly intelligent uh, humans, um, they start wondering what these strange experiences are. You know, you're sort of 
appearing to have experiences outside the body um, in another world. But at this point, they're not worshipping anything other than it's just trying... It, and then, what's the benefit of that, and, what, and, where, and where does it go to? So I think this, this came into play at a time when our lineage was evolving relatively large groups by comparison with our kind of previous ancestors, not talking about sort of city-sized uh, populations, we're talking about a few hundred people. And the problem that we and our primate cousins have is how to create a bonded community that's cohesive and sticks together and does the job it does for, for us living in, in these communities. Uh, and we've evolved lots of behavioral mechanisms for creating the bonding effect. The, the, that bonding effect comes through triggering the endorphin system in the brain. Endorphin system is part of the pain, brain's pain management system. So it's an opiate, it, it acts like morphine, that's where the name comes from, endogenous morphine, meaning the brain's own morphine and the body's own morphine. <clears throat> but it's chemically just slightly different, so you don't get addicted to it in the same way as you do to um, more conventional opiates. But what it does is give you the same feelings of relaxation and calmness and all, uh, being peace with the world and, and everything's uh, rosy and wonderful. And uh, whoever you're doing these activities with, you feel very bonded towards them. And the kinds of activities which we locked onto to produce these effects, to make it, create this sense of belonging to a community are things like laughter, singing, dancing, eating socially together, especially if it's spicy, um, uh, drinking socially together, telling emotional sob stories, and it turns out the rituals of religion. So we've been able to show for all of these that A, they trigger the endorphin system, and we've actually done that with religious services, um, and B, it makes you feel very bonded to the community you're doing it with, let's say the congregation, but it's extremely specific to the people who are present. So even your best friend or your granny or whoever, whom you love most dearly in the world, if they're not there, doesn't make any difference to your, how you perceive your relationship with them. But the people who are there on the day, on the occasion, then you feel very bonded to them. It's an extraordinary effect. Um, singing is particularly good, which is why I think singing occurs in almost all religions in some form. And we call it singing the icebreaker effect, because you can take people, complete strangers, and give them a, an hour's singing, community singing, you know, Gareth Malone singing, right? Nothing, nothing highfalutin, um, no Bach arias or anything like that, just community singing. Give them an hour of that, and they, complete strangers come out of it feeling as though they've known each other for life. They're telling each other the secrets of their, their, their lives and things like that, and they feel very bonded together. It's an extraordinary effect. It's almost instantaneous. Uh, and all these effects do, and it, it, it seems that the rituals of religion in particular um, uh, produce the same effect. So we've shown it, we've shown it even with Anglican church services. <laughs> not quite as staid as you can get, there are more staid things. <laughs> it's not exciting, but uh, the more exciting and, and, and kind of um, uh, um, evangelical the church services become, and therefore the more movement and singing and activity, the stronger the effect. And the best effect we had was with one of the Afro-Caribbean modern cult-religions in, in Brazil, the Umbanda um, uh, churches. I don't know if they call themselves churches, really, but uh, those kind of thing, where they, they use trance, and it's very much based around um, uh, singing and, and music at very high intensities until so somebody or several of the people leading the surface actually go into trance. And, and what period are we in when, when people are still in this communal kind of relationship, when they're discovering that they like things, that they're, they're bonding together, there's a benefit in some form to some of these yeah. kind of rituals or... There's no dogma really, it's just rituals at this particular at point. At this point it's just rituals. What kind of time period are we in at this moment? 
my best guess, uh, uh, but it's an, inf uh, an informed guess, is these kind of things began to emerge over the last 500,000 years, from about 500,000 years ago, the appearance of archaic humans. Um, uh, there are lots of reasons for thinking that, um, not least the fact that, that the anatomical evidence suggests that that's when singing first became um, possible, that there were a whole lot of changes in the structure of the vocal apparatus and so on, and the ner nerves to the um, vocal apparatus that, that uh, happened at that point and made what effectively was the ground basis for speech to come. So they probably did have language in some form, but not very sophisticated language. So that, that you know, would have lasted a very long time. And it's not, I think, until, well, the archaeological evidence suggests that you don't get uh, serious theologies developing until probably the beginning of the Neolithic, um, eight to 10,000 years ago when you have a, a kind of major shift in the kinds of religions and, and the, the kind of archaeological evidence for the type of religion from these kind of hunter-gatherer type, shamanic type religions, where you may have spirits associated with um, wells and springs. And so how is the leap made then? The leap made from just communal or I, I, or or, or endorphin-releasing kind of activity yeah. to it being yeah. something well, what, more. What that coincides with is living in villages, permanent settlements. So up until then, uh, we lived, um, as hunter-gatherers still do, in fish and fusion social systems where the community is dispersed and lives in perhaps three... So you might have a community of somewhere between 100 and 200 people, but they're divided between perhaps three camp groups of about 50 each, usually something of that order. Um, uh, and so the whole community is not physically in one place. And living in communities is very stressful, don't you know? <laughs> right? Um, this is a problem all primates, all mammals have to cope with. It's extremely stressful living in close proximity to other individuals. And, and the whole of primate evolution has been an attempt to find ways to manage those stresses and hold them in check so that you can live in much bigger groups. Primates live in large, stable groups compared to all other species of, of mammals and birds. And humans live in, by the primate standards, mega communities. Uh, and, but at this stage, they're only about one to 200 people, but they're dispersed and that's holding the, the stresses in check because you know if you get fed up with the Joneses, you can go and live in the Smiths at the next waterhole for a bit and things like that. That just kind of diffuses things. Once you have everybody living in groups, and the archaeologists are pretty sure now that that was a consequence of raiding. That the, um, actually, it's quite interesting because, sorry, we're going to detour here. Um, uh, at the end of the last ice age, 10,000 years ago, um, the Sahara was not as it is now. It was beautifully lush full of lakes and massive rivers. There were hippos and crocodiles in the middle of the Sahara, fish, antelope, gambling about in the grassy plains, baboons. Baboons, the, the current northern limit of baboons in Africa is nearly a thousand kilometers further south uh, now compared to what it was the um, <clears throat> 10,000 years ago. All right, so you had a very rich environment with low pathogen stress. So diseases tend to be uh, very heavy um, in the region of the, of the equator. And then they, they kind of die, pathogens die away because they can't cope with the colder climates as you're going further north or south towards the poles. Uh, and the top edge of the tropics, um, which is really the top end of the Sahara, uh, demarcates an area of optimum population growth because growing conditions are extremely good still. You're not into the kind of seasonality we have up here where for half the year you can't grow anything. Uh, but equally, the, the pathogen load has dropped dramatically. So it's absolutely perfect. So it looks like there was a massive increase in population sizes. And this happened all the way across the old world, across the uh, Africa, Europe, the Mediterranean Basin, 
right through um, the Indus, uh, Ganges plain in North India, and right through into the Great Basin in, in China, the Yellow River, Yangtze River Basin in, in eastern China. Um, and you started to get a, a dramatic rise in population, and people were raiding and becoming a nuisance. So what their response then was to go and live in villages. Well, that just increased massive stresses. And I think what you see at that point, once very quickly after people start living in villages, is evidence for formal religions, much more formal religions. So buildings that look like they were temples in some form, sacrificial, they have, they have altars for sacrifices and things like that. Um, and also... But what are they um, following at that time? Um, mostly local gods. Mm. Um, so uh, it, it, it's what the, the local gods is. who they're not by this point. They're not. They're not worshiping the mountains or lakes. And oh yes, that's where they come from. That's yeah. where the local gods come from. Mm. Um, but they they appear to have no. I mean, the conception seems to be in, 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 at that level, very different from how the modern religions would view the divine world, if you like. The, mm. the modern religions view God or, 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 or the gods, as you have them maybe in Hinduism, um, as largely benign and interested in what humans do and, and promoting their interests. Um, uh, most of these gods um, just want you to sacrifice to them. They're like the sort of classical Roman Greek gods. They're disinterested in human affairs, um, but you have to pay your tithes and sacrifice to them and that's what you see a lot of is what were clearly sacrificial tables because they have runways uh, uh, coming out from them for, for mm. blood to flow out of and out of the building for example so that phase um, comes in almost simultaneously and right away across that belt and then mm. yeah. <laughs> and then 4200 years ago suddenly the climate changes. We're worried about climate change now. It's going to be nothing compared with what hit the world 4,200 years ago, the 4,200 uh, mm. uh, climate event. Um, the Sahara dried up over in the course of 300 years, and it precipitated massive uh, upheaval right across that belt. Uh, um, uh, um, most of the old world Mediterranean um, Near East empires collapsed. There was massive, a bunch of people turned up out of Europe who are generically known as the Sea People, but nobody knows quite who they are or where they actually came from. They seem to have come down through Greece. And they all just arrived in boatloads and just burnt everything. Um, all, all the um, big cities uh, in, 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 on uh, Palestine and, and modern Turkey um, uh, have got you know, a meter deep um, ash, basically, where, uh, all for the same time period, where they just lay basically. The only people who seem, really seem to sort of cope with them was the Egyptians who defeated them roundly in, in two very major battles. And, it, and all this stuff's, you know, on, on um, the accounts and um, tombs and, and, and uh, so on in um, uh, Egypt. Um, but it, it was clearly a big problem. At the same time, uh, in the Indus, uh, sorry, the Upper Ganges Valley, the Harappan uh, Empire collapsed, um, uh, and in the Yangtze Basin. So, um, are, the, are these empires at this are these empires at this time still yeah. sacrificing and worship and, and yes. not necessarily have no no particular kind of dogma related, right. but they're just yeah. and what sacrificing to whatever that yes. whatever the local yeah. god yeah. is. Yeah. And what that seems then to coincide with very soon afterwards is the appearance of what are known as the Axial Age religions, mm. which are all the modern religions. They all appear at the same time um, in that first millennium uh, BC, basically. So between uh, uh, 3,000 years ago and roughly 2,000 uh, 2, years ago. So what, apart from obviously the catastrophe of people killing each other en masse, I mean, what happens to make that happen? We've had the population movement. How do yeah. you go from population movement okay. then to the next stage? Okay. So I, I think what happens at that stage is, is, well, what appears to be the case is a bunch of thinkers, if you like, produce ideas which trigger religions 
um, which are much more personalized. So the idea of a personalized God uh, who's interested in human affairs appears. And, and everything becomes, there's a very strong tendency for these to be monotheistic in some form. Um, so even though Hinduism has lots and lots of gods, there is a kind of top god, if you like, uh, and, and that's characteristic of all these, these But this is still a leap, though, isn't it, Robin? It's yeah. a leap. We're, making, we're talking a huge evolutionary yes. leap. Why, yeah. is, why is such a big leap? Uh, no, I think it's just the pressure to try and keep the community together, to keep society together, because now you're dealing with very, very large numbers of people, and it actually coincides with the population size of about a million people within the same political unit. This is, this is not my work, this is mm. what other people have figured out in the last couple of years. And, and it is absolutely um, across the whole board of these, the old world that this happens. Mm. It happens at exactly the same time and under exactly the same conditions. And it's always when you have a population unit of about a million people or more. So who are, who are the key movers and shakers at this moment then? Um, <clears throat> well, you can uh, tell me who the key movers and shakers in Hinduism is, because I don't think anybody okay. knows. No one knows, but I'm not going to go <laughs> but, there, but carry on. But, yeah. uh, um, Gautama Buddha, uh, setting, uh, creating Buddhism, yeah. um, and then that kind of giving rise uh, between the two of them to things like Jainism, Sikhism. Um, but Buddhism, Buddhism. This, is, this is later than this period. It's, it's the later part of it. But, but it's not, it's not, it's all within that same thousand year period. No, it's within that same thousand year period, but it's in the later part of it. So, so in, the, in, early, in, the, in the early part of that period, uh, what it, happens? Uh, 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 the answer is we don't know who started those earliest religions. Mm. I mean, we have some idea in some cases. So um, uh, Zoroastrianism mm. being started by Zoroaster. Zoroaster, yeah. very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the clue is in the name, yes. Yeah. Um, and that actually provides, seems to provide a lot of the foundation for a lot of the Abrahamic religions as well. Mm. Um, but it must be, a, you may, I imagine it's very difficult to jump from, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of being linked, in, of, of following a similar, a similar-ish kind of trajectory to then suddenly jump to... Oh, uh, more yes, organised right. religion. But I think, yeah, yeah, well, okay, they don't appear... <laughs> that quickly is organized religion. So yeah. if you look at the history of any religion, it takes a while for, or often very several centuries for it to develop its kind of basic tenets. Sometimes you get the mm. whole thing laid out by one person. Like I would guess Sikhism would be an example. Yeah. Um, the Guru Nanak, you know, sort of really establishing the whole thing basically. And Islam would be the same as Muhammad establishing most of the, the, the basics. But it, you know, if you look at the history of Christianity, it takes several hundred years before mm. it, it achieves any kind of um, uh, consensus, really. And, and, and you know, many people would argue it's not Christianity that we have, it's Paulinism, mm. founded by St. Paul, that he was the one that really made the difference. Um, uh, but before we go down that rabbit hole, yeah. um, <laughs> If we go back, just trying to get the chrono chronology right, yep. etc. So we've got to the stage now where we've got the beginnings of organised religions that we would recognise in some form or other. Yep. Um, how long does that take to evolve into the kind of an, an into the kind of religion or the religiosity that we would understand today? Oh, I think well, okay, the psychology is all there, mm. right? That hasn't changed. Over so that the time. endorphins is there, the, the communal activity, the all of those things. To yeah. think about. I think yeah. what's happening is people are just thinking more deeply mm. about trying so education, to explain. Edu education, possibly. Well, no, yeah. I think it's just people. You know, we would usually refer to a lot of them as saints or mm. you know uh, gurus of Sages. some sort. You know, mm. they they spend their time. Uh, thinking about why the world is the way it is and, and how we can uh, manage it better and, uh, and it sort of avoid all the, the pitfalls. So you get coming through that lots of charismatic uh, individuals and that seems to be the basis of it. And I think what all these, these things are, are driven by is our tendency to be attracted to charismatic individuals. That happens at all levels of life and from working for you know whoever you the guru is that that uh, uh, invented your particular company um, Mr. Zuckerberg <laughs> or whoever you know um, they all get set up 
as mm. kind of um, uh, clever, clever folk who, who do these things, and, and, and we buy into that. Uh, you know, it's part and parcel. So of charismatic leaders come creates, and, and, and create these things. Creates a sense of belonging, right. uh, of attraction to, to them. So it's, this happens. The point is, this happens at all levels, at all walks of life. Um, but it <clears throat> seems to be if you attach a spiritual component to it and a component which is difficult to explain, then it, it is an extremely powerful mix that attracts uh, followers in very quickly. Now, the reason it, 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 it's difficult to explain goes back to the fact that religiosity or religious experiences are of this mystical kind are <clears throat> they go on below the radar of consciousness, so we find it very difficult to express. It's a raw fields kind of experience. Something magical is going on in your head, I suppose, if you like. <clears throat> and you can't often put it into words, and you can't express what it is, but it is very magical, and it is very uplifting and stimulating and exciting. And it's, it's that combination of these two, two things, of you, of, of you being led into these experiences through some kinds of rituals or other, and a, let's call them a guru, um, uh, who says, you know, this is what it all means. This is why it works. This, mm -hmm. is, this is the explanation for it, and essentially providing a theology. So you're, you're seeing... A and so people buy into this. Yeah. People buy into it. They get, oh, it gets yeah. bigger and bigger. Yeah. It starts to spread. Yeah. It, do, it doesn't happen unless people buy into it. Yeah. You know? And, you know, this happens all the time. It's going on continuously now. Um, as, as we speak, all the big religions suffer from the problem of cults uh, and sects bubbling up from underneath. Mm. Right? Um, they play absolute havoc the hierarchy trying to run the whole system. The Pope in Rome uh, looking after the theology of that particular branch of Christianity. You know, and all over the place, and you can see it all through the medieval period. It starts literally within decades of the death of Christ and Christianity. These mystical sects arising. There's a huge number of them. Um, <clears throat> uh, heavily influenced by an anonymous writer called, called uh, uh, Dionysus. <laughs> Uh, Areopagite uh, in the in the Egyptian desert, um, and and they just spawn these cults. They're very small, centered around particular individuals. Sometimes they they die out. Many of them die out within a generation or so of the death of the founder of the cult. <clears throat> Some don't. Some expand and explode. You know, and, and give you you know that's where most of the many of the kind of uh, um, denominations in, in Christianity come from, They're, and particularly the Protestant ones. Most of the Protestant uh, churches, bar the big ones, so Lutheranism and Anglicanism and so on, all the little ones, the Methodists, the uh, Quakers, etc., 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 Pentecostalists, all began as small charismatic sects of this kind, um, heavily into trance. Um, uh, there were loads of them um, in, in, the, in the 17th century. But going back to that particular that chronological period, so we've got the beginnings of cults that may become religions or not become religions, uh, and people are, are buying into charismatic leaders, etc. Yep. Is this happening globally, or is it? Yes. It is. Yeah. But obviously, the religions that we know of are, are the ones that become the survivors. Yeah. So we know that obviously, because people are disparate, there's going to be there's going to be the equivalent of their local god in yes. this particular new new world order. Yes. 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 I mean, it, 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 well, what tends to happen with these if you like breakaway sects, I, I, they become breakaway sects because the hierarchy doesn't like them generally. Mm. You know, so you think of you know the the Sufis in Islam, they're sort of both major factions disapprove of because uh, yeah. they don't they don't like it, and uh, and it's the same in. In, in the well, it, 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 well, it happens now. I filmed with yeah. the I filmed with the breakaway sect for yeah. the uh, Church of Scientology. Yeah. They believe in Scientology, just not in the Church of Scientology. Yes. Yes. But that's yes. a nuclear kind of reformation, yes. quite frankly. But yes, um, yes. Oh, no. yeah. but, but, but they, you know, they all start like that. I mean, yeah. it, it is fascinating to see how these things emerge and sometimes 
become major churches. Uh, where but what's the jump, yet? though, then? What's the jump, though, then, at this point? So we've got the beginnings of organised religion now that we would recognise. Yeah. But why so many of them? I, I, I think it just goes back to the fact that religion evolved in and was designed to maintain very, very small-scale communities. I'd say one to 200 people, right? And that's when people feel most comfortable. There's a whole lot of uh, literature in church planting, in, in Protestant, mm -hmm. evangelical Protestantism, which I didn't know about, I discovered by accident only a couple of years ago, um, which is fascinating in this, because they, they constantly worry about the size of their congregations. It turns out that the optimal size of congregations uh, is somewhere between 100 and 200. Right? Mm -hmm. if the problem is if it's smaller than about 100, the burden on the parishioners of maintaining the parish and the minister is too great. But once it gets above about 200, um, the, the minister can't deal with, on a personal basis, the parishioners. So it becomes too much of a load from their point of view. What tends to happen is people don't contribute so much uh, to the, the uh, funds of the, the church. They drift away, they feel dissatisfied because they're not getting out of the church what they need. Um, and <clears throat> uh, it, it tends to, f to fall apart. You, you are, what, at that point, you either have to have a, a daughter church, which happens all the time. So that's what the Hutterites do uh, in North America, and the Amish, two very similar Anabaptist, fundamentalist Christian groups. Um, they, they, they try to maintain their communities, which is essentially a parish, a church, uh, at less than 150, that's their ideal number. And once it gets above that, they'll split it. But, but obviously that's that not that what happens now, does it, in the evolution again? In the evolution of, of the religion, obviously it goes beyond 150 people. No, no, no. Yeah, well, no, yes. yes. That's, that's, you know, that's, that's all about sort of just uh, being part of a, a larger community, right? It's not about yeah. the... the there's, a, there's a key difference between having a hierarchy which tries to control everything on the top, which is what the major big religions in general try to do, um, some more directly in, uh, than others, um, but underneath, at the bottom of it, and this is, I'm, what I'm trying to explain is why you keep getting mm. this bubbling up, is because the local communities become dissatisfied. Of course, yeah. And you either have to have, split the church or have a, a team ministry. Like the, the uh, <laughs> weirdest experience that I had with this was I was at a conference at the Vatican, one of the Vatican universities, which is the one run by the Jesuits. It's the Jesuits are interested in all kinds of things um, <coughs> uh, 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 that would be considered weird, mm. uh, probably from the hierarchy's point of view. But anyway, they decided it was the Darwin Bicentennial year in 2009, so they ran this huge conference of um, the title was Why Has, Why Has Theology Ignored Darwinism for so long, mm. right? Um, what's the problem? So they had lots of evolutionary uh, folk come and talk, and uh, um, <clears throat> lots and lots of those very well attended, absolutely packed out, uh, mostly with, with very earnest young men in black suits and dog collars, but a lot of weird and wonderful monkish and nunnish uh, uh, um <clears throat> attires as well. Now, after I give my talk and sort of explained that this number 150 seems to be the ideal number for congregations, when I get back to my seat, this chap tapped me on the shoulder from the seat behind and said, um, we here are all the priests from a particular parish in Hartford, I think it was. And he said, that's very interesting what you just said, because we're a parish of about 500, but we have three masses on Sunday, and the masses have a completely separate attendance, right? So they're separate groups. So the parish of 500 is divided up into three subgroups who never talk to each other because they go to different masses. And therefore, by definition, they have a different priest looking after them because there's a different right. priest doing okay. you know, the 7 o'clock mass, the 8 o'clock mass, and the 9 o'clock So it's mass. inherently built into the it, thing? Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's what happens. A lot of that's you know, why you get this, this sort of substructuring that you often do. Um, um, then when people say, obviously, you know, we talk about contemporary modern religions, relatively speaking, in, the, in this 500,000 year 
journey that we've been on. Um, if they say, well, that's not true, you know, that, the, you know, Jesus is the son of God, Muhammad is the, yeah. is a, the last messenger of God, etc. We could go on, you know, Guru Nanak, all these people. I mean, but they, they, they're not linked to anything that you're saying. Is that just their belief or is, or is, or have we had moments in time in, in the evolution of religions when this has been the norm as well, when things just take big, big, big leaps? There are, I think there are occasions when major religions actually do go extinct. Mm. I mean, that's been true in the Abrahamic religions. You know, the, conventionally, we see them as three, Islam, mm. uh, Judaism, and, and Christianity. But there were two others, which, one of which was extremely uh, popular, much more, more popular than Christianity was at the time in the, in the first millennium mm. uh, uh, AD. Um, but both of them, well, one of them's completely died out, the other's virtually died out. There are remnants that are kicking around in, in, in the Near East. Um, you know, that, that, uh, these things go in phases um, uh, in that sense, in, in that religions seem to have a, a life cycle of their own. Uh, and that partly depends on history and circumstances and what happens. You know, obviously, in the Middle East, the Middle East was dominated by Judaism, Christianity for the first. Uh, five, six hundred years um, uh, AD till Islam came along and then effectively Islam replaced all of them with the southern barrel. So the same thing happened in, um, <clears throat> you know, sort of between Iran and, and, and uh, the northwest of the Indian subcontinent with the spread of Islam and they had Zoroastrianism in, 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 in Turkey, sorry, in um, uh, Persia, yeah, yeah. Iran. Um, and then just being completely replaced. And, and a lot of the Zoroastrians moving eastwards, it, 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 you know, pushed by the arrival of Islam, as it were, ending up as the Parsis in India, of course, um, who are the major descendants of, of Zoroastrians. So and what's the likelihood of survival or the next evolution? What's the next evolution <laughs> then? You can never predict evolution. <laughs> you can no, you can't predict evolution. But if you could look at what you've... What, what you've what you know of how religions yeah. of how religion has evolved, or, or man's desire for religion, or man woman's desire for religion, humanity's desire is a better word. Obviously, humanity is a better word, but desire for religion. Um, what would you see? Imagine what would you imagine happens next? Because we live in a world. We live in well, particularly we live in a continent, which pe where people talk about as living in post-Christian Europe. Yeah. But obviously, the rest of the world is not living in a post-Christian Europe. Yeah. But. What can you see happening when you think about the evolution of religion so far? Uh, well, there are two possibilities, and that's you know, what one can observe from the basis of history, I think. Mm, yeah. One is that a particular religion starts to become very proselytizing yeah. and gets carried around either through conquest or, or trade or something like that and, and spreads and becomes very dominant, which in effect uh, is what um, happened with with uh, Christianity, um, uh, and of course, uh, and with Islam, with Islam uh, uh, prior to that. Um, I'm thinking of Christianity in, in the kind of 18th and 19th centuries, particularly. Mm. Um, but also, uh, you know, the possibility that new religions arise up from the bottom somewhere, and they could come from anywhere. Um, uh, is, is, is always there. You know, there's, there's no telling how things are going to take off. Um, there, is, there have been lots of attempts to understand why some, what are called new religious groups, uh, these kind of novel cults mm. and sects, survive and take off and become very big, as some of them do. You think of the Mormons, mm. uh, in, <clears throat> you know, sort of founded only uh, a couple of centuries ago, really. Um, uh, the Baha'i faith, uh, likewise, uh, and, you know, again, a couple of hundred years. So we are seeing still the, the yeah. birth of... Yeah, and it, it, it goes back to the fact that, you know, people, A, they have, seem to have this need to believe in, mm. in, 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 in a supernatural power, uh, and that partly comes out of the experiences. So, you know, if you like, my pitch here 
is sort of stands in contrast to the view you seem to get out of a lot of the literature that the reason why people join religions is because of beliefs. I don't think that's true. People join religions because of a feeling. You know, it's a raw field that you can't explain. There's something wonderful and, and extraordinary. And is that in our, is that, are we, why is that wired into our that, brain? That is, is, that's that's the study, isn't it? That's yeah, the study that's that they've been doing for many yeah. years, which is basically well, I, it's wired you know, I into think our no brain. There's no question that that that's, um, um, just comes out of uh, the brain and, and, and the way our psychology works. Okay, well, we've got to the end, we've got to today. We've, got to, we've, we've, done, we've romped through 500,000 years <laughs> to get to today. Uh, and I think that everyone, if you've had to listen to 500,000 years worth of history, you should be able to ask the odd question now as well. Oh, so who questions. would like to ask a question? <laughs> uh, this gentleman here. Hi, um, I was just kind of weirdly surprised when you were talking about those kind of revolutions that happened, that writing wasn't in there. And I just sort of wonder how you think the development of writing changed this and whether that maybe formed a change between things maybe evolving generation to generation to being actually codified. I, I, I think the very simple answer to that is writing became crucial for one particular reason and that is writing down the rituals mm. so that they could be done Precisely, because that's the whole issue with ritual. Rituals become important with these kind of doctrinal religions that appear uh, eight to ten thousand years ago, right? Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the rituals that have to be done to the particular god, uh, 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 that, and they have to be done right. If they're done wrong, they're not going to work. And you, you're, most of these religions are in a context where if you don't produce the right sacrifice or you don't do the ritual right god is going to smack you for it mm. and that's all he, god is interested in you know god is not interested in your your good behavior or anything like that god is only interested in 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 the rituals being done right and the sacrifices being done correctly um so writing down rituals so you see it, the very earliest ones are on the tombs of the the egyptian pharaohs um sometime you know sort of around uh, 4,000 4, years ago. That comes in very early, because writing is late anyway, to be fair, but I think it was a great boon in two respects, because it allowed you to write down the foundations, the stories of the religion. So every religion has its foundational mm. uh, scripture, right? Uh, and without having that in writing, um, it becomes a mess, you know, which is what happened with the uh, Christian Gospels, um, you know, sort of whenever it was, 200 years into the Christian era, uh, all the bishops had to sit down and decide which of these thousands of Gospels <laughs> that had been produced um, and they were actually the true ones, right, and give you the, whatever it is, the four we allowed now. But there are all sorts of other interesting Gospels. There's the Gospel of, Saint of Mary Magdalene, there's the Gospel mm -hmm. of St. Thomas, uh, there, are, there are hundreds of them, literally, that, that were actually written down um, and, uh, um, at the, in, in those first couple of hundred years. Um, so it, it, you know, once you can put it in writing, it means everything becomes very stabilized. Mm -hmm. and you can have kind of um, theological rectitude is basically what's wrong, because that's the problem that the hierarchies in general, the priesthoods, if you like, are st struggle with, with these mystical charismatic sects is their theologies are often very, very strange. They're a kind of syncretic mixture of bits of <laughs> legitimate, the, the legitimate theology of the religion they belong to, but with weird other stuff added in. Uh, and, you know, the, mm. I mean, they're fascinating <laughs> to study in themselves because they're, they're just so weird, some of them. Um, but I think that's why writing became, you know, did play mm. a very important role. Okay, another so question? So the gentleman next to you, yeah. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm just quite curious because um, religion is very uh, ancient, broad, different, deep, spiritual, you know, and so, so personal from region to region, sometimes too, too personal and spiritual. 
So um, how did you go about your research? Well, it, it's a combination, I mean, what we were doing with our particular research was trying to understand the uh, role of religion as a community bonding mechanism. Um, so we actually did a lot of experiments, actually in church services of various kinds, uh, <clears throat> to try and look at this. Um, but also, um, we did a lot of ana analyses of data from the literature of hunter-gatherer religions in particular. So there are big corpora uh, that have been put together over the last 50, 70 years um, of, of anthropological ethnographic data for, for a lot of these societies, small-scale societies. Um, uh, fortunately, because of course none of them exist in their um, ancestral form, they've all been messed about by, by you know, modern economies and so on and, and politics. Um, uh, so and, and change very much, but but there's a very good record of that, and, and you can get a lot out of those kind of things. So the 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 the, the order in which um, different components of religion, so belief in a high moralizing high god, as they're called, um, uh, you know, does that come before or after um, trance practices emerge? And, and by looking comparatively across different hunter-gatherer religions, you can figure out what the order, the sequence that they come in. So, um, uh, for example, mono um, monotheistic um, uh, theologies uh, uh, in, in hunter-gatherers, um, such as they are, uh, tend to come in uh, once you have um, pastoralism. And almost all the mono, um, monotheistic religions are associated with pastoralism. Islam, uh, Judaism, uh, Christianity, uh, the Igbo in, in West Africa, the Himba in, in, in Southwest Africa, who obviously came down, they're Bantu, they came down uh, uh, and picked up cattle and monotheism from the Maasai, or uh, one of those groups in East Africa on their way, the Maasai, all the Cushitic tribes. Uh, in Western Ethiopia, the, the Nilohamitic groups going down to, to, to the Maasai, who are the most southern uh, of that group. Um, again, they're all uh, herders, they all have monotheistic um, uh, religions. So, you know, you can get a lot of stuff out of it. We're not okay. anthropologists, we're not ethnographers, we don't go around talking to people. And, you know, which is you know, of course, is, is essential because you can't build these databases unless people have done it. But on the other hand, if you, if, to do an anthropological study, you can only study one community at a time, and it's a life's work. So you can't possibly study that. So we rely on the shoulders of the giants before us for, for that kind of information. I think this gentleman the, with the, yeah, had his hand up for a while. But I guess the, the, the bottom line here, I mean, I, 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 technically I'm not a scientist, right? I, I actually went to university philosophy, it's the only thing I was interested in, only I found it was too difficult. <laughs> My brain wasn't big enough, and I happened to do a joint degree of psychology because I had no choice, because um, the university that I went to didn't offer philosophy on its own. And so I ended up becoming a scientist. Now, I, as a, as a, as a, at secondary school, sixth form A level, I considered myself to be the origin of C.P. Snow's two cultures. I was in the humanities. Science was for mm. funny people. <laughs> serious, serious people did philosophy and <laughs> English and history and things like that. So that was my background. But I became a scientist, and so my, but because of that. I have this very broad perspective, so I, I work at very different levels, you know, from the genetics of uh, as particular aspects of, of behavior, the ecology, um, the history, evolutionary history, the actual history, um, the uh, physiology, the sociology. You know, I just bring it all in together. It's great fun, but it's like sitting in front of an enormous jigsaw puzzle, <laughs> trying to fit all the pieces together. But once in a while, all the bits suddenly fall into place, which is what this book. Well, you can about. find it in the book. I'm not just saying that it's a fascinating read. Um, sorry, sorry, gentlemen, I just arm up for a while. Um, I don't know if you ever come across somebody called Ronald, Ronald Hutton, 
Uh, it's a bit like you, Professor Ronald Hutton. He talks a bit, a lot about. Um, oh yeah, the anthropologist. Yeah, yeah. He talks a lot about ancient yeah. pagan religions like the Druids. Yeah. And in one of his talks, he mentioned about um, about it's highly likely that in Britain there was a monotheistic faith who just worshipped a goddess. So how did we go? When did we go from believing in goddess to to God? Mm. I'm tempted to blame the Abrahamic religions. Yeah. <laughs> but it's if you, when you go to Golbeki Tepe, in places yes. like, so yes. no, you can explain that better. But when you go to Golbeki Tepe, the, you, you see the, the, the whole Mother Earth, Gaia type yeah. goddess is there, isn't it? Yeah. But th those, those um, uh, uh, mother goddesses themes keep reappearing. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're thought to underpin uh, some of the kind of more mystical uh, um, uh, sects in, um, in late medieval Christianity, for example, early medieval Christianity. Um, and th those were influences that came from the Middle East and possibly further east than that. Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, the, the uh, yeah, just being reminded of the Druid Druids actually in this context just reminds me that, you know, going back to this kind of mystical um, sort of psychology we have that triggers a lot of this stuff. I mean, you, you can just see it littered there still, the remnants of ancient pre-Christian religions scattered around Christianity and in Europe. You know, so you think, and, and the, not only the beliefs, but, but the attempts. So, you know, you think of throwing pennies into, into water fountains, you know. Um, this, this is, you know, pre-Christian ritual. And, you know, we still do it, you know. We, there are particular uh, tree, wishing wells and mm. trees, you know, springs and, and natural springs where people go and tie messages. You know, and even in uh, Anglican churches, uh, and probably others, you know, there's a little board for you to go and put your message for pr mm. prayers for me for, for this particular reason. Or it's exactly the same thing. You think of the banyan tree, you know, all over, certainly northern India, mm. the village banyan tree, it has these magical properties where you can have your wish come true, as it were. And, and it, it's there. And, and the most extraordinary one of the lot, which I came across completely by accident, um, watching one of the archaeological programs on the new HS2 excavations for the station in Birmingham. Mm. So what they're, where they're building it is a, a, an old cemetery, a huge old cemetery, where I, I think several generations of my ancestors, my maternal ancestors, are actually buried there. I'm very tempted to go along and say, can I find great grannies? <laughs> <laughs> Row, could I see her? <laughs> um, <clears throat> but one of the things that puzzled them was about a dozen of the. So they're, they're lifting all the, the uh, coffins and bodies and they're reburying them um, uh, somewhere else, um, which happens all the time, um, these kind of things. Um, but what they were puzzled by was about a dozen bodies which had plates, porcelain plates, on their chests. And they couldn't figure out what on earth this was because they had no, no grave gods. You know, sometimes people get buried with, you know, their favourite dolly or you know the uh, rings or tiaras or whatever it is they may have, but just the china plate. Until somebody remembered the tradition of sin eaters, mm. right? Now the last sin eater was buried in 1906, I think. So we're talking about very recent times, which is about the time that particular uh, cemetery was closed. Um, uh, but it was extremely common in the west of Wales, the Welsh borders through into Shropshire. So this, you can go and see this guy's grave. It's at a church in Shropshire. References in the book. Um, uh, 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 and the <coughs> What happened was when uh, you died, the body was us as usual in those days was laid out in the front parlour and they would put the plate on the chest with salt and bread. And then what was supposed to happen was the sins of the deceased were absorbed by the salt into the bread and then just before the hearse came to carry the coffin away to the, or presumably the people, 
uh, carried the coffin away, if you couldn't afford a hearse, uh, to the church for the, for the burial, the village sin eater came in, ate the bread, and therefore absorbed all the sins, so the departed then went presumably straight to heaven, and um, uh, got paid you know, a few coins and a, a you know, glass of beer uh, to help wash it down because the bread was a week old by then. <laughs> Um, and, 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 and went on their way. So, what, you know, this was extremely common. This is a kind of, you know, um, superstition, if you like. And this is Anglican, you know, hot Anglican country. This is not, not sort of uh, strange places. Um, uh, but it, 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 it's, I, I'm, it's a kind of weird cultural phenomenon because these people were then completely rejected by the rest of the community. They were outcast in the community because of this association with the dead and with sin, right? Um, uh, 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 but if you look at who they were, they were all old and poor, right? And, and you know, this was a way to get a bit of a free meal and some money. Mm. I think it's got me to the last question, I think. Okay. Thanks. Uh, you rather dismiss belief, and yet through all the religions, people, because of their beliefs, have been willing to go off and kill a lot of other people who don't have those beliefs. Uh, I mean, isn't there a real big issue that's kind of missed here about the power that religion has given and people have then wanted to use to impose on others? And how do we manage a world where we have actually all got to say, we're all in the same place, folks, we've got to live together on this? A, a very good question. Uh, <laughs> um, the short answer is, it go, I think it just goes back to the fact that religions evolved to bond very small communities, and they're extremely good at doing so. Um, and I hasten to add, the health benefits of being religious are actually extraordinary. Um, religious people, uh, in general, are happier, uh, they are healthier, and they live longer than, uh, let's say, actively, they have to be actively religious. Um, but this is all the doings of the endorphin system, because one of the things the endorphin system does is trigger the body's immune system, tunes it up, and it, it triggers the release of natural killer cells. And natural killer cells are particularly designed to target viruses and some cancers, some cancer cells, so seek and destroy. So you can see where the link is, why you get these health benefits. But I think that's a kind of accidental beneficial byproduct of religion, if you like. The real purpose of religion, the real benefit of it, is it creates a, a, a cohesive community. And that's huge, has been hugely important. It's usually, it's basically these kind of cohesive societies, they're, they're kind of Rousseauian um, uh, um, uh, 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 social systems in some sense, in, the, in that they, uh, uh, it, it allows people to collaborate solve the problems of successful survival and reproduction, right? Uh, and, and to be able to do, this is the story of primate evolution, why primates have been so successful as a group. But for, for, for humans, creating that, that sense of belonging uh, and creating very stable societies has been hugely important. But one of the unfortunate features is all those mechanisms we use for creating uh, a um, bonded society are based on us versus them, right? Now, we actually do it even with our friendships based on the same system that we use for creating friendships. And the, this is, um, in the terms of friendships, what's known as the seven pillars of, of friendship. Right? So there are seven dimensions of friendship, which the more of those dimensions you have, the stronger your friendship with that person will or you share with somebody, the stronger your friendship will be with them. One of them is religious beliefs or religious and moral beliefs, but other things are just sort of essential common interests and essential cu cultural interests, speaking the same language, for example. So it, it, you know, the, this, the, the way we create friendships, and that's been expanded to creating communities, has been to identify people who share lots of things with us, but they're all cultural. Right? None of these things are locked in stone in the genetics. They're purely cultural and they change through time and generation by generation and you know, uh, through your life's experiences uh, and who you meet. But because of this homophily effect, it creates this echo chamber type of 
uh, response in terms of, of communities. And that's where it seems to me all religions then fall down, is because once they get big, <laughs> you're beyond the scale at which you can cope with the rest of the community. Once the community gets big, you're beyond the scope, scale at which you can cope with it on a person-to-person -person basis, because that limit is at about 150 or there, thereabouts. Um, so once, you know, it works very fine on a village basis, but once you're into sort of much bigger political uh, uh, units, polities, then uh, you, you're in great risk of the thing uh, becoming so us versus them that it becomes very proselytizing, convert mm. you know, everybody else because they've all got it wrong. Um, they better know about the right religion, which is the one we have, or they, it becomes very tied up with, with, with the state and politics. The marriage of church and state is famously observed because you know that's exactly when you get into um, all, all these religious wars it's just bizarre if you could solve that problem religion would be very beneficial just as they solve the problem of how you have the disconnect between 150 people yes. and one one billion yes yeah. Yeah, that's a that's an easy one to leave you with so if you could all ponder on that and come back to the festival next year and we'll have a session on how do you go from 150 people Absolutely. to 1.2 billion well look, i'd say i think i think you should deserve a round of applause for professor Robbie dunbar